Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon. Friends, our scripture reading today is Psalm 25, verses 1 through 10. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Do not let me be put to shame. Do not let my enemies exult over me. Do not let those who wait for you be put to shame. Let them be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all day long. Be mindful of your mercy, O Lord, and of your steadfast love. For they have been of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me. For your goodness' sake, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his decrees. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a few moments now of silent reflection. Gracious God, as we have this moment of silent reflection, perhaps the most silent and reflective we've been all week, because even though so much of our lives these days is happening at a socially distanced place as we're being quarantined and sheltered in place, as one of the things we're constantly called upon to do to help slow the pandemic around us is just to do nothing, to rest. The reality is that is the last thing we want to do. We're not equipped to do it. Even when we stop and slow down still, there are voices from without all the time giving us more advice. Telling us to continue to achieve, to strive, to climb. The voices from without to buy more, to do more, to be more. And then there's the voice from within that tells us, Our best days are behind us. We're not going to make it. Maybe you made a mistake that that was just the final wrong turn, and now the entire journey is just irreparable. And that's exactly what we want to talk to you about today, is what do we do with the frustration, the anger, the confusion, the difficulty of this season? How do we face the uncertainty of the future without it making us more cynical or more bitter, but rather making us more buoyant, more warm, more connected, more hopeful. That's what we desire today. So thank you for the gift of Psalm 25 that you bring to us. We invite you now to teach us in a way that our lives would be transformed by the power of your Holy Spirit. 
that you would convince us as different as we may be from one another, as different as our stories and our experiences and our perspectives are from one another. At the core, all of us have more in common than we realize. On one hand, none of us has it all together. Each of us is what might be called a beautiful mess. And at the same time, you see us and you know us in our beauty, in our brokenness. And your response is to give yourself to us in the sacrificial work of your son, Jesus Christ. And so now, as we open these scriptures, we pray that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes to your grace, our minds to your truth, our hearts to your love, and our lives to your powerful presence. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, this week, as we enter into the season of Lent, it kicks off with Ash Wednesday. And so we were right here in person and online last Ash Wednesday. And this is the day where you get the ashes on your forehead and you remember you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And for my temperament, personality, you know, e, I'm an ENFP on the Myers-Briggs. My top strengths finder is woo. If you do the Enneagram stuff, I'm a seven on the Enneagram. Ash Wednesday is the last place I want to be, okay? I, I want to check out as soon as possible. And yet what I've learned over time, and that really goes for a lot of Lent as well, I would love to fast forward to the season of Easter, but you've got to get through Lent to get there. I'd love to get to the hope of the resurrection, but you've got to get through the cross first. And instead of that being bad news or a complete downer, I would suggest to you that that's actually the healthiest way to view life, that this is a great gift that we are given to say what you already intuitively know is that life is not the way it's supposed to be. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. Whether you look in the mirror and you say, things are not the way they're supposed to be in here, or you look at your news feed and you say, things are not the way they're supposed to be out there. And Lent, the season of Lent, 40 days before Easter, gives you all this time and space to explore that, to own it, to articulate it, to actually bring it before God so that it doesn't run you over. You don't need to run from it. You don't need to medicate it, but rather you can face it head on. You know, one of my first jobs, roles as a pastor when I was a, just a new pastor in San Francisco was I would go and lead church services in county jail every week. And I particularly gravitated toward the medical ward and the mental health ward of the county jail. And let me tell you, preaching to a camera is not easy. Okay, Preaching, imagining there are people at their computers right now, friends who are joining in. I know you're there. I, it takes a lot of imagination to connect with a camera. This is easy compared to preaching to a crowd of people who are talking to other people who only exist in their mind in the psych ward of County Jail of San Francisco. But here's what I learned, is that for someone who's there or in the medical ward with a gunshot wound facing really hard time in you know, an upcoming trial, you don't have to work too hard to convince yourself that you are not in control of your life. You don't have to work too hard. You don't have to stretch your imagination too much to say, maybe I actually need some help in life. But out here, where the sun is shining, where we can put together an Instagram page or a Facebook page that's kind of full of glittering images, where we can try to convince ourselves that we actually have it all together, it's much harder. We live in a culture that tells us to hold on to control as much as we can. We live in a culture where there is actually a role called influencer, where your job is just to be able to get other, to influence people's thoughts and actions. Which is why I think this season, as Lent begins, right as we are 11 months into the COVID shutdown, I think is the perfect confluence 
to reveal we are not as in control of our lives as we would like to pretend. That things are much more fragile than we would like to believe. And that that's actually okay. You know, I was reading, I opened my news feed this morning to the New York Times, and it was another article on, you know, the startling statistics of the shadow side of the pandemic. You know, not only the health loss and the loss of life because of COVID, the economic loss and the loss of jobs because of COVID, but the shadow side of the loss of mental and emotional health, the amount of depression and self-harm that is going on around the world right now. And Lent comes to you and says, you need to do something healthy with your sadness and your sorrow, or else you'll do something unhealthy with it. Right? So we could all go around and share stories. I won't ask you to, but we could say, what's the least healthy thing you've done during the COVID pandemic? And we could all share stories. But we can also ask, what's the healthiest thing you've done during this pandemic to deal with frustration and disappointment? What's the healthiest response that you've had toward loss in this season? Now, Christians are actually given the gift of Scripture and the gift of calling, and there are a lot of resources that the church, the gathered community of Christians, can offer to the world in a time like this. We can offer hope to the world in the hope of the resurrection and a God who turns even the dead ends into new beginnings where joy has the final word, not sorrow, where life has the final word, not death. There's hope that the church can bring to this world. The church can bring connection in a world that's more lonely and fragmented and fractured, and we come together around Christ. But an often overlooked resource the church can give to this world is the gift of lament. Lament, to be honest and articulate your frustration, to hold on to your complaint and lay it barely bare before God while still holding on to hope. Lament. And that's the gift that Psalm 25 gives us today. That's what we'll be looking at throughout these next 40 days on Sundays, is the gift of lament. And here we see that you can be honest about your experiences in light of the larger reality of God's presence. And when you do, you actually have a new way forward to go through difficulty confusion and sorrow without becoming more bitter, more cynical, more disconnected, but becoming more hopeful and more connected. So first, let's take a look at what it's like to be honest and authentic about your experience. Now, I realize some of you are saying, look, I've been a part of churches before, and the last thing you could do in that place or that community was be authentic or honest with how you were really doing, right? Maybe the church said things like, come as you are, or we want you just how you are. But if you started to share that things weren't going well or that you were struggling deeply, you could tell there was kind of this distancing, this social distancing before it became cool in the community. And I want you to see here the honest authenticity that we are invited to have about our own experience, about our own frustration. Look at verse 2 as the psalmist is crying out. By the way, the psalmist is believed to have been King David. Probably toward the end of his life, King David has known what it is like to have loved ones turn on him. He's known what it is like to live in great wealth and poverty. He's known what it's like to live in a palace and in a cave. He's known what it's like to find himself at the end of his ethical and moral compass having done things that he can't believe he's gotten himself into. 
And so it's here, he says in verse 2, do not let me be put to shame. Okay? So he starts with this internal struggle that he has. Maybe we'd call it the inner critic. I had a great pastoral conversation with a friend this week. We labeled it the heckler. He says, I'm, experience, I'm experiencing this inner shame. You know, guilt tells you that you've done something wrong. Shame tells you that you are something wrong. And he's saying, I'm experiencing shame. I've got that voice that tells me my best days are behind me, that voice that tells me that I'll never make it, the voice that tells me that my parents were right about me, the verdict has been passed, and I'm never going to amount to anything. Help me, God, when I experience that inner struggle. You see how authentic he is with that. But he doesn't stop there. Then in verse 2, he continues on, and do not let my enemies exult over me. See, I have an inner struggle, and there's also outer trouble. I've got my own thoughts that beat me up at night, but I've got these other people who want to take me out by day. I have friends who have turned into enemies. People who promised to keep my trust have gone and shared my confidences. People that are in my, in my workplace are trying to snub me. And beyond that, it gets worse because in verse 3, there are those who are wantonly treacherous. Wantonly treacherous. Not only... The the psalmist is saying, not only do I have to deal with the voices in my mind, do I have to deal with the struggle that's going on externally, but I am watching openly vile, treacherous people prosper and not be held accountable. This is an unfair world. This is an unjust world. The psalmist is specific about his experience. Can you see the honesty and authenticity in lament? Can you be this honest with God? And here's the point. God's compassion creates space for you to be honest and authentic with your disappointment. There's a place later in Matthew chapter 9 where Jesus is on a hillside. He's surrounded by people who are leaning in and learning everything that he has to teach them. And it says when Jesus saw the people, he had compassion on them. Hold that word compassion because we'll come back to it. When Jesus saw the people, he had compassion on them. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He saw them. First of all, he sees you. Do you know that God sees you? And he had compassion on them. Because they were harassed, that's the internal struggle, and they were helpless, that's the external trouble. And he moved toward them. You can be honest and authentic about your experience because of God's compassion toward you. And that's really where you see the reality, the truth of God's character in this passage. It all hinges on verse 6, where David, the psalmist, comes and says, Be mindful of your mercy, O Lord, and of your steadfast love, because they've been of old. Be mindful of your mercy and of your steadfast love. Those are two words in the original Hebrew that if you double-click on them, entire volumes of information and context open up. The word uh, translated as mercy in the English translation in Hebrew is racham, which is also translated often as compassion. This is a word that comes from the Hebrew word rehem, which is womb. In other words, 
When God sees the pain and brokenness of your life, the fracturedness of this world, the compassion that God has on your situation could be defined as womb love. It's the kind of love that a mother would have for their not yet born child. God sees you and loves you like that. But it goes even further. This combination of words, racham and chesed, chesed is steadfast love, loving kindness, are echoed throughout the Old Testament. In fact, the first time they're brought to us in the Old Testament together as compassion and steadfast love is in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. This is when Moses had already led the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. They were on their way to the promised land. Moses goes up Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments. God promises, I will be your God. You will be my people. And while Moses is up on that mountain, the people down below get restless and irritable and impatient, and they rebel, and they fashion out of gold a golden calf, some sort of idol, something they could put their trust and hope in that would tell them they would have meaning, they would have identity, they were going to be okay. And Moses comes down the mountain and sees these people in the midst of their rebellion. He gets so furious, he smashes the Ten Commandments. And then he turns around and goes back up Mount Sinai, where God meets him again. And it's in that context where God has already rescued the people out of slavery. God has already promised, I will be your God and you will be my people. The people have already rebelled and shown that they're going to take matters into their own hands. And it's at that point, in chapter 34, verse 6, God responds with God's self-revelation. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And it's the same exact words. Compassionate, merciful, abounding in steadfast love. The things that have been done to you and the things that you've done to yourself and others, what is God's response? Behold, I'm abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I love you as a mother loves her not yet born child. You see, guilt and shame are excellent motivators in the short term, but they are really unhealthy, toxic, bitter, and terrible motivators for long-term transformation. Here's what I mean by that. Guilt and shame. If you're afraid that God is going to get angry and mad and crush and condemn you because of the things you've done wrong, that will keep you on the straight and narrow for about a day, (laughs) maybe a week. But Scripture teaches us it's not God's anger that leads us to turn to God. It's God's loving kindness. When you begin to see how much God loves you. And that inner critic comes in and says, but if he really knew about me, then God wouldn't love me. And God says, oh yes, I know even that about you. And I still love you. And I'll never leave you or forsake you. That is what leads us to turn back to God or to turn to God for the first time. Friends, you will never turn to God until you see how God loves you. But once you do, why would you go anywhere else? whether for the first time or for the thousandth time, hear him say to you, you are my beloved. Return to my mercy, my compassion, my steadfast loving kindness. 
Now, how do we know we can trust this? Here's this final part of, of Psalm 25, verse 10. Did you catch this part? All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. Great, we talked about that. Who is it for? It's for those who keep his covenant and his decrees. Okay? All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenants. See, this is where someone says, see, this is the part I can't stand about Christianity. Okay? If you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps, if you can put together a report of good behavior for long enough, then God's steadfast love and kindness comes to you. And let me just say to you, A, I hear you, and B, that's not what this scripture is teaching us. Because it begs the question, who among us in all of human history has been able to keep all of God's covenants and decrees? Certainly, David, the psalmist who wrote this psalm, who had a woman named Bathsheba into his own home, although she was married to a man named Uriah, and then had him killed. Certainly, David knows that he has not kept God's covenants and decrees. So what's the way forward? Well, first we have to ask, what are the covenants of God? And throughout the Old Testament, God continually makes covenants with God's people. Let me give you a few examples. After the flood with Noah, remember that story? Noah and the flood, Genesis chapter 9. God says, I have set my bow in the clouds, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. God covenants to never judge the earth again by flood. But here's the imagery of that moment where there is a rainbow in the sky. Think about this in archery terms. Okay? We, we, we think rainbow, we see it. We, have, we are a long way from archery, you know, archery society, if you will. If that was a bow to be strung and shoot an arrow, in what direction is that bow pointing? Toward the heavens. And everybody in the original audience would know that God is saying, for, for, for your brokenness, for your rebellion, if there will ever be judgment again, Send the arrows toward me. I will take the judgment. I will make things right. Let me give you another example. Genesis chapter 15. God covenants with Abram that he will have many descendants and will occupy the land of promise. Exodus chapter 20. God covenants with the people of Israel. This is on Mount Sinai. When he gives them the Ten Commandments, he says, I will be your God and you will be my people. Here's the thing about each of those covenants. The people never kept their side of the agreement. And God says, I will be faithful because I'm faithful, and I'll be faithful even when you're faithless. I will be true because I'm true, and I'll be true even when you're not. And even when you wander, my compassion, my mercy, my grace, my steadfast love are strong enough and powerful enough to find you. So who keeps the covenants and decrees of God? Only God. But the good news of Jesus Christ is that God does it on our behalf. In Christ, God says, take my righteousness as your righteousness. Take my faithfulness as your faithfulness. Receive my steadfast loving kindness. And if you want to know how far and how deep it goes, only look at my son Jesus Christ who knows you, loves you, and took the pain of this entire world upon his shoulders on the cross. And three days later, in the powerful beauty of Easter, in that empty tomb showed that the final word on this world is not your pain and your brokenness, 
is not the things you've done to others or things that have been done to you. Those are all real and all true and all heavy, but they're not the final word. The final word is healing. The final word is resurrection. The final word is new life. Friends, if this is true, if God's ultimate act of compassionate, loving kindness was to come to us in Jesus Christ, not in spite of our persistent disobedience, but directly in response to it. The coming of Jesus is prompted by God's racham, his mercy, by his chesed, his unfailing love. It gives humanity a means for finding and walking the pathways of God. So Psalm 25, and we'll, we'll close with this idea. Perhaps it comes to you right now and says, what is the pathway your life is on? What is the pathway your life is on? How do you know? Is it noble enough? Is it true enough? Is it beautiful enough? Is it strong enough to support you with all of your complexity and tragedy and glory? And it says, why don't you come and try God's path? Because Christianity tells you that God has not merely cut a hole in the ceiling of reality and he's shouting down ways for you to live a better life. That's almost every other moral, ethical, and religious system. But following Jesus is completely different. It says that God has cut a hole in the ceiling of reality, but instead of shouting down more instructions, God has come down through that ceiling himself and done for us what we could never do for ourselves. God has become one of us so that we might become one with God. And that's an entirely new path. Maybe Lent, these next 40 days leading to Easter, is a time for you to try that path anew or with more intentionality. You know what it means? It means you can face disappointment and despair in healthy ways instead of unhealthy ways. I have a therapist friend who always says, you have to do something healthy with all of your disappointment because if you don't, you'll do something unhealthy with it. Those are our only two options. You will implode and hurt yourself or you will explode and hurt others. And God said there's an entirely new way. Be honest and authentic with your brokenness, with your pain, with your sorrow. And trust me in the midst of it. It means you can have hope in the midst of disappointment. It means though you strive and you try and you do your best, you can also relax a bit. Because at the core of the universe is a God who knows you and created you, and he is 100% good with no evil at all. And so you can actually trust the core of the universe to be loving kindness, to be compassionate. It means you can relax in the hands of a loving God. You know what else it means? It means you become a person that can move toward the pain points of others. You become a person who's known in your home or in your office or on your block as the most approachable person there, the person to go to when other people feel like they're coming undone. You begin to be a non-anxious presence in the midst of difficulty for others. You don't need to fix others. You don't need to give advice to others. You can simply be a non-anxious presence and walk with them, trusting that God is walking with you. Friends, there is no way to microwave this. This is a slowly cooked meal. It's the long journey of lament, which I think is why Lent gives us 40 days.
But as we go through the valley of the shadow of death, as we're honest and authentic with our own disappointment, as we hold on to the disappointment with the character of God, who at its core is compassionate, loving kindness, it gives us a new way forward altogether to be buoyant, to be brilliant, to be beautiful, to be hopeful. And as you do, you will never be the same. But you know what else? As we do, the world will never be the same. Let's pray together. Gracious God, for many of us, um, lament is kind of a native language where we are so full of disappointment um, that we need to do something healthy with it. For others of us like me, um, lament seems like a foreign language. It's not something that comes naturally to me. And yet, going through this world with all its beauty and all its tragedy means that by definition we will face disappointment. Many of us are now. We will endure difficulty, frustration, confusion, pain, sorrow. When we do, help us to be authentic and honest about it before you and others in a healthy way. Help us to hold on to your character, which at its core is compassionate, steadfast, loving kindness, especially when we feel like we don't deserve it. And help us to be people of that sort of renewal wherever we go. We pray these things for our good and for your glory. Amen. Thank you.